Angelica Unger returns to the podcast. She's a Taiwanese-American journalist and formerly a writer for the Taipei Times and RE News. She's now worked to become among one of the most trusted voices in Taiwan's offshore wind industry, writing for her own publication, Taiwan Offshore Wind Unredacted. And as well, she writes for a very popular substack, Taipeiology. Now, she returns to the podcast today, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but in response to all the uproar and furor that happened over the weekend because of uh, Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi's uh, trip down into uh, Taipei. So uh, Angelica went around interviewing a bunch of uh, local Taiwanese uh, to get their response to see what they thought about it, because something that is uh, quite surprising, or at least it was surprising to me when I first spoke to Angelica, was her response to how the Taiwanese people just react very stoically to this existential sort of looming threat, uh, constant looming threat that that is China. And as you'll see, the response is um, actually changing a little bit, which is concerning, especially if you live on that um, beautiful little island. So in this podcast, we speak about that. We speak about um, Angelica's post in her most recent post in Typology, which speaks about these interviews that she conducted. And as well, we open up more uh, broadly on you know how the calculus might have changed when it comes to the potential or at least the threat of China actually coming in and invading Taiwan. So with all that out of the way, with absolutely no further ado, please hang around to the end of the podcast because I, there I will explain what my ambition is for this show. But here I give you Angelica Ung. So it's that time again, Angelica. <laughs> Taiwan is in the news. Uh, that's right. Uh, well, you know, uh, editors are calling me from across the world. Friends are asking me if I'm doing okay. So I guess this week, Taiwan must be the most dangerous place in the world <laughs> again. <laughs> so maybe you could just tell us what happened. We sort of know very surface level that Nancy Pelosi, the mm -hmm. yeah. very prominent U.S. politician, Speaker of the House, I believe the second most... Uh, um, powerful politician in America uh, made a trip to Taiwan. Yeah, well, she's certain, certainly third in line for the presidency. And um, she's also got a long time history of standing up for democracy. In fact, when she was a very young congresswoman, she went to China in the wake of Tiananmen Square and, and you know, insisted on visiting Tiananmen Square and honoring the people who died there. So she's got a long history. Um, that plus her prominence made her visit really, really triggering for the Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they've been, you know, banging on their war drum for uh, weeks and weeks saying, uh, don't go to Taiwan or there will be consequences. Um, I believe you mean the Chinese have been the Chinese, the yes. Um, the, in fact, when she met with Biden uh, just shortly before, uh, I believe he told Biden those who play with fire might get burned. Um, <laughs> slightly ominous. Um, but I think the more the more they say things like that, the more Pelosi could not back out. There's no way she could back out um, after that. Uh, and so she came, and they didn't do anything while she was here. But as soon as she left, um, they announced some drills. And most seriously, there were a few missiles that flew over Taiwan and landed in Japanese waters. So um, 
yeah, there's it, it's it's actually um, of course it's terrible, but it's also really really interesting for me. Sure, <laughs> I mean scary though. Um, actually, I don't feel any short term fear because. I think most people don't. I talked to like 15 people because editors obviously want to know, everybody wanted to know what are the Taiwanese thinking. And most Taiwanese are not worried at all for the short term and neither am I. And let me tell you why. It's because uh, she has got a lot going on at home. So uh, you might have heard the economy is doing terrible. His draconian COVID zero policy is not working at all. Um, and he's trying to get his third term um, which would be unprecedented in uh, since Mao. So um, he's got a lot on his plate. This is not the time anybody thinks he's going to want to launch an invasion. Uh, especially, uh, we don't think that the PRC are actually ready yet. So in the short term, we are not concerned about a kinetic war. But this is an escalation, an, a, undoubtedly an escalation. And um, I think maybe in the medium and the long term, um, in the long term, it's all the same. We know that China has it in their plans to attack if they can. Um, so the long term prognosis hasn't changed either. I think it's in that medium term that things are a little bit dicey. You definitely see um, this time, uh, if you look at the map where they announced the drills, the six sites for the military drill goes all around the island of Taiwan. And uh, so what they have going on is actually something interesting. I never considered it. It's almost like a virtual blockade. Um, so when I th previously thought of a blockade scenario, I um, envisaged actual vessels uh, parked in the sea, preventing passage from other vessels. But they merely announced, well, you know, missiles could be falling out of the sky at this location. And even if it's a huge location, you know that international marine commercial traffic, there's no way they'd risk it. So um, just by announcing, well, we might be doing missile tests here and here and here and here, there's actually already been like significant disruption in commercial traffic, including LNG shipments, which um, is something we really have to watch in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. It's not good when you're having um, straight line equivalents drawn between you and, and Mao. I'm sure there are <laughs> many other <laughs> equivalences. Oh my goodness! As well. uh, unfortunately, so um, yeah, it's it's really really uh, I think unprecedented, and uh, unfortunately because. He's so out of line compared to the previous Chinese leaders. And um, we can talk about, I mean, obviously none of them were saints or angels, but at the core, you feel like there's some rationality there. There's somebody you can deal with. Mm. They might do terrible things, but at the bottom of it all, there's a calculus about you no know, uh, risk-benefit analysis. They're very rational. Um, but with Xi, I think this is the first time with a Chinese leader um, in, in my living lifetime, anyhow, ever since I, I came of age politically, where I feel like, my goodness, this could be a um, madman surrounded by yes-man situation, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you have, yeah. So, um, you know, 
the reason why I proposed to speak with you today is to speak about your most recent substack in typology, um, speaking about the sort of locals' response to yet another Chinese threat. But before we speak about that, I um, wanted to first ask what your thoughts were, um, you know, and you're a former writer for the Taipei Times, you know, yep. as well, have mm-hmm. your own publication. So you are well informed when it comes to answering these sort of questions. But what is the conceivable reason why Pelosi would make this trip at this stage? I was reading in The Economist this morning that the Biden administration it like almost explicitly asked her not to do it. Um, and obviously, once it was announced, they couldn't back down. Um, so they were forced to go ahead and do it. But conceivably, there is no obvious strategic reason for this trip to have done. And it's just unnecessarily poking the dragon. So um, why did this even happen in the first place? Well, um, I don't know. I really don't know. The only um, reason I can think of is that Nancy Pelosi is... Uh, getting really old and she wanted to do this <laughs> from a personal point of oh, view before she retired. I just can't, yeah, I just can't believe that that's the reason because how unbelievably selfish would that be if the, if it turns out that she just wanted to, you know, add another line to her resume before she retires. Well, I'm sure this is going to do well for her because once she When she did decide to come, it's not like Taiwan can be like, no, no, not a good time. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) It's like when she decided to come, we have to say welcome. America is our ally. And um, to give her the full benefit of the doubt, let's say she did this purely because she thought that this would be the best way to enhance Taiwan-American relations. Um, and for Taiwan, it might be worth it because even if we did poke the dragon, if the result is a closer, closer ties with America, that's worth it because ultimately what is keeping Taiwan safe right now is its international allies. So in the first podcast we did together almost over a year ago, what stood out to me or something that stood out to me the most from it was your response to how the Taiwanese people think about this almost constant existential threat that looms over them because they are this um, liberal democracy. I mean, liberal compared to China, uh, seemingly sort of sovereign island of 24 million people with one of the most important companies in the world that is totally central to globalization. So they are this amazing little culture and island and they distinctly are different from China and these sort of factors. So there is this constant looming threat that China, the big bad uh, you know, dragon, is going to come and take him over. Anyway, your response to it was, yeah, no one really uh, thinks about it. Or it doesn't bother them at all. They just sort of go on with life. They just brush it off. It's no factor. Um, which I thought was almost inconceivable. So uh, that was an amazing response. But it seems like even in response to this latest thing with Pelosi, uh, which is what your whole typology article is about, it's sort of the same reaction. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I want to separate being being scared with being panicked with... I mean, there, to me, there is a range of reaction. We have some people who ju- are just com- in complete denial or... Uh, ostrich head in the sand and there are some people mostly younger actually that I think actually are thinking about it in exactly the right way 
and they're not scared in the short run either, but they are fully aware that um, a Chinese invasion is a possible threat, especially in the medium and long term. I think we all saw what happened to Ukraine. And let's not forget, the people in Ukraine were some of the last in the world to accept that Russia could possibly attack. It's just really, mm. when you're living under these circumstances and- That's an ominous point. It, well, it is because in order to get on with your daily lives, um, there's a certain amount of, of wishful thinking and cope, right? You, 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 can't, you can't live your lives while um, constantly um, under threat. So um, how do you balance being able to um, get on with your life? And also, it's really important not to be afraid because, again, that would almost be playing into Chinese communist hands because if they can intimidate the Taiwanese, then they'll just do that more until we fold, right? And then we don't have our country either, um, even if we, and they wouldn't even have to fight for it. So um, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of maturity to deal with um, a, um, low uncertainty but high consequence threat in a day-in, day-out mm. way, mm. logically. Mm. Perhaps you could refer to some of the um, individuals sure, that you spoke sure. with. Absolutely. Some of them had you know, very telling responses. I, I feel like it's, it's really interesting how, how cleanly, and I didn't expect this, they, the responses broke really cleanly into age groups. And with the, I'll just start with the old people. And they're the ones who are not worried because they don't think that Xi Jinping would be, quote unquote, that stupid. Or they don't think, they, they just don't, to, to them it's inconceivable. Or maybe they live through too much. But um, it, what's interesting about this group of people is that they still feel a sense of kinship with, um, with China. And uh, they, they could have been people who, um, let's, let's say my landlady, I'm, I'm very sure her, um, she was born in Taiwan, but her um, parents probably came over from China in the aftermath of World War II. She's a retired bureaucrat. And she has what I call a deep blue viewpoint, meaning this is a very aligned with the old KMT. Um, she called- Which are- very nationalistic, very nationalistic and um, yeah. we're talking about nationalistic hyper-conservative from China because the KMT were the losers <laughs> in the Chinese Civil War in the wake of the Second World War. And um, Mao, Mao's Communist Party um, kicked their ass and they ran over to Taiwan, which they ran as a dictatorship until basically in the middle of the 80s. Um, so she's like, well, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi is an old witch and an arrogant American, and President <laughs> Tsai is weak and corrupt, and uh, it's a very, very marginal viewpoint. And um, she also thinks that if she does decide to invade, it'll be, quote-unquote, over in days. Um, I have another friend who's older, and he's a retired engineer in his 60s, and he also has this 
language that shows that there's some kinship with China. It's like, oh, what, what would, what would Xi Jinping? Why would Xi Jinping want to turn Taiwan into a burning husk? And you know, and、uh, also, we're all descendants of the Yellow Emperor. This is very、um, typical language for somebody who sees. Being Chinese as something that's very blood-driven. So, if you're descendant from a Chinese, then you are Chinese in some essential、mm-hmm. way, and、uh, just very out of step now with current thinking.、Um, so, anyhow, those are the older generation.、Um, I would say fifty and above. Then you have the working folks. You know, I like I love this. My plumber was. He he just had the the most you know I was just, I was asking him well aren't you worried about an invasion no I don't think there will be an invasion what if there is an invasion I will worry about it when it happens what do you think of Pelosi <laughs> coming to Taiwan I don't think about politics your drain is fixed <laughs> you know like very yeah,、exactly. this is this is very <laughs> typical of what I call the working age、uh, people like. Not worried because worrying does no good. Approach.、Uh, my roommates,、uh, Ian and Bob, they fall into this category too.、Um, basically, it's just one of those things where、um, they might intellectually agree that there might be a risk, but、uh, you know, they are just not going to be worried about it because they don't feel any personal sense of agency. Feel like it doesn't matter. It's nothing I can do to change things one way or another.、Um, and then, lastly, you know, I interviewed a few people who are younger. I unfortunately, I'm older myself. I'm. I don't know anybody who's like truly like Gen X. So the Gen X viewpoint is missing. But these are folks in their twenties.、Um, and out of everybody I interviewed, I think they actually have the most nuanced take on the situation. Uh, both actually acknowledge that it is.、Um, let me just read the response here.、Um, Taiwan didn't get more dangerous overnight, but we've been worried since the war on Ukraine. That's when we realized maybe not yet, but it can happen here. That is, in fact, ultimately China's plan. So I feel like that's just clarity. Come on, that's just clarity. And.、Um, Uh, this guy, he's a very professional young person I know in renewable energy, and he says a lot of his friends are actually taking this fairly seriously, going to civil defense seminars, and one has even decided to、um, study、uh, military studies、uh, in response to the invasion from the Ukraine.、Um, wow! Well, that's a very tangible. Yeah.、Um, Sort of note of how people might be responding, and as well how likely they might think that they might genuinely have to de- defend themselves. Yeah, yeah. And here's here's what I find really really interesting is that、um, he is just as、um, he thinks that false narratives, which induce learned helplessness, is just as damaging. To Taiwan's survival as missiles or fighter jets,、uh, because there.、Mm. Could you explain well, that? Well, there's, and this is pervasive. This used to be pervasive in Taiwan.、Um, there's this idea that's like, well, China's so much bigger than us. China's so much stronger than us. If they decided to lift a finger, we'd be overrun. 
instantly. It'll be over in a day. We don't have a chance. And that induced a lot of fear over the years. I mean, we're talking about Taiwan not being afraid now. Well, that used to be much more afraid in the past. So um, definitely, even I would say the last time the Taiwanese were seriously concerned security-wise was probably like in a tangible way, in a, oh, we have people flying out of Taiwan out of fear kind of way, was probably 1995-96, the third Taiwan Straits crisis. Um, back then, people were really scared, and it was just totally accepted that if China wanted to, they can just snap their fingers and Taiwan would be overrun. And th the interesting thing is we know that is so not true now. And it certainly wasn't true then. Now the PRC is already so much stronger, so much better equipped, and so much more of a force to be reckoned with than it was back in 1995-1996. But back in 1995-1996, I think the perception is, is that they, they, are, they are just uh, going to overwhelm us, which, which is funny, right? Because if it's so easy, how come they never did it? It's certainly not out of the goodness of their hearts, right? So um, even now, um, I think uh, w one quote I really like from my friend, he says, like, you know, fear comes from the unknown. And the knowledge is, well, we know it's impossible. We used to believe that China can take Taiwan in a day. Now we know that is objectively impossible. Um, it's used to create an atmosphere of fear, which is in fact a serious threat. Um, we can can China uh, take Taiwan? Yes, it's a possibility. In fact, they have done war games at the U.S. Rand Corporation, and um, the U.S. doesn't always win. It doesn't mean that China will win, but the U.S. doesn't always win when they play the play out the war games. Um, but we know that the Chinese military is continually adding to its capabilities. Um, this means that there might be a window, like a sweet spot, between um, now they're not ready, but then after they're ready, uh, their capabilities are in fact going to decline after a certain point. Uh, they have, uh, you know, a baby bust, so they're going to lose the military-aged personnel, and Xi himself is going to get old. So um, that is that is why we, we don't think it's going to be this year, uh, but we think it might be sometime in the, in the not-too-distant future. So uh, another really interesting young person is my ex-roommate, and uh, she actually regularly goes to a civil defense um, group. Uh, on the weekends, and they do things like first aid training, or sometimes they train in the mountains with airsoft rifles. Mm -hmm. um, and they're wow. they're basically preparing for insurgency. And this is more hardcore. Oh my God. This is more hardcore than I have ever come across because they're not just talking about oh you know if it's a blockade where are we going to get our water. This is about okay the Chinese have taken over the island. How do we fight back? And no. I asked her, That's I asked her, you know, do you think, like, I, I wanted to ask this delicately, you know, because the thought I had in my mind is, well, if the Chinese have, in fact, occupied Taiwan, 
then it's going to be very difficult um, to uh, kind of uh, rise up and throw them off as opposed to defend. It's easier to defend, right, than to overturn. Um, but as far as she's concerned, um, Taiwan has nothing to do with China and it wouldn't be acceptable to her to live under Chinese rule. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, she is really wow. hardcore. I don't think I, she might be just as much of an outlier, but, you know, I, when I heard that, I was really surprised myself. We were all so, like, impressed and surprised um, and just in awe of how brave the Ukrainian people have been and still are in resistance, you know? And I have interviewed several times in this podcast a guy called Alexander Kucherenko, who is very, very similar to me in demographic, you know, in life ambition everything you know it, it, in in an alternative universe i could easily be this guy and he's there picking up guns shooting at people it's it's so hard for me to fathom how do you think the, the taiwanese will respond do you think it would be in a similar fashion well it's really really hard for me to say because you don't know this until you've been tested you can't know and mm -hmm. i don't want to or in either direction. I don't want to say, oh yeah, that's right, we, we hate the Chinese, we, we, we won't be able to tolerate it, we will fight. I don't want to say that because that might not happen. But then I also don't want to say, oh no, we're soft, we're not strong like the Ukrainians. We, you know, unless they challenge us to a StarCraft tournament, we're done. You know, <laughs> I don't want to say that either because <laughs> you don't know. Like I remember in the aftermath of the Ukrainian war, um, just on LinkedIn, you know, I'm on LinkedIn a lot for my business, and you just see those people, like, you know, picking up guns and saying, well, hello, guys, I'm a project manager, <laughs> and I love my job, but uh, yeah. now my country yeah. needs me, so I'm going to be doing this for a while, Slava Ukraini, and, and you're like, wow, mm -hmm. wow, wow. Uh, yeah. and you're, you're really, I, I would, let me, let me put it this way. Um, I think the young people of Taiwan are definitely moved by the bravery and probably inspired by the bravery of the young of, of the people of Ukraine. I shouldn't just say young people because it's you know we've, we've seen amazing resistance from all ages there. But I personally, as you know, somebody who's more in the squarely in the working age category, I still think I have that mentality of, you know, maybe a little bit more like learned helplessness. Um, I, I can't see myself, I, I don't know, who knows, like you don't know what will happen when the chips are down. What I would prefer is for us not to be ever in that situation. Yeah. yeah. Jesus, absolutely. And, and yeah. Which makes it so much more egregious that a U.S. politician might come simply to feed her own ego. It, it can not be possible that that is the reason I, she I, came. I don't want to say anything more because you know what? What's done is done. And all I, we can hope mm. is that she came. And what it implies is a, a upgrade in Taiwan-U.S. relations. And uh, again, we don't know. Like here we are saying, well, Pelosi's owed. It's, it's her last year. Maybe that's why she came. But who knows? Maybe... Maybe it goes deeper than that, and we just 
are not privy to that information, I do find it mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. very, very troubling that Biden did come out and, and say this is not a good time. Um, and again, you know, it's like, uh, <sighs> why would he say that? Yeah. It's like it, it, um, yeah. it, it feels like if there is um, lack of consensus within the U.S., um, it, it makes it harder for everybody else to respond. Uh, but in, here in Taiwan, I don't think we get a choice. You know, Nancy Pelosi wants to come to Taiwan. Uh, and she's obviously coming to Taiwan. And all we can do is welcome her. Um, but in fact, mm-hmm. in fact, people have done this. And, um, you know, I think you and I maybe are like, okay, let's hope that this works out well. Because if it do- really doesn't, we don't know what it's for. But I would say the... Um, vast majority of people in Taiwan are are just happy. They're like, wow, you know, it, it seems like the Democrats are also um, finally on our side because I think there was a perception because um, the U.S. actually started approaching Taiwan uh, much, approaching much closer relations with Taiwan with Donald Trump. Um, there's... An, just historically, the the Republicans have always been much more friendly to Taiwan than the Democrats, who have been the real politics party. And um, well, let's just let's just it's in the face of all this unknown. Let's give Nancy Pelosi the maximum um, benefit of the doubt. She came to Taiwan because it's her last chance to upgrade U.S. Taiwan relations and show that the Democrats have Taiwan's back. I remember, yeah. And ultimately, you you want and need desperately the U.S. in your pocket. Not in our pocket, but uh, as our allies, as our staunch allies. At your table. At, exactly, because yeah. we will never, and, you know, a lot of people complain. Sometimes, you know, journalists in Taiwan complain, you know, it's like, oh, everybody is just treating Taiwan like a pawn. But unfortunately, there is a greater game at work here. And uh, Taiwan is a pawn. That's just an acceptance of reality. But we can be a very powerful pawn. And uh, we can, you know, play the game in a way that ensures our own survival. So uh, it's not about, um, we will never, it, we will never be able to control the U.S. or China. We can only influence them and and hope that they will uh, be be in good coordination, right? And um, in fact, I think for Taiwan, you know, it, it is it's, it's a, it's a sense of how to um, how to be in a somewhat disempowered position, but still act wisely and preserve yourself. Um, I okay, let, let's let's look at this in the most positive possible way. I, I remember when. Trump reached out to Taiwan, and uh, basically, I don't think he was a super thoughtful politician either. Um, in fact, we know from Michael Bolton's book that he wasn't really a true friend of Taiwan. While he was, you know, sprinkling diplomatic favors and uh, um, being, you know, just being fairly careless about um, approaching Taiwan and being friendly. Um, we also know that he had no intention of coming to Taiwan's aid 
if there was ever a hot war situation. Michael Bolton described it in his book. He was just, there's no way. China's right there. We're so far away. How can we do anything? Waka, waka, waka. So it was a very irresponsible politician. But despite that, um, ultimately, uh, sometimes in international relations, you know, president mass matters so much. He just set so many presidents of, of China of, of, first of all, of U.S. and China being at odds with the trade war, and then Taiwan and the U.S. being friendly, that ultimately I think it's it's had a fairly beneficial effect. So, um, in a way, I don't I don't need to know what's what Nancy Pelosi's real motive is. It's just like okay, let's see what comes out of this. Totally about the mm-hmm. consequences, not the, not the motives. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Well, look, we said we'd keep it short, so um, I'll leave on this one. How do you how do you think that these events have changed the calculus that China might actually invade? Have they changed it at all? Changed the timeline? Changed the likelihood? How do you think it's changed that? How do you think these events have actually influenced the real? question and issue. I think these events have been consequential, but um, whether it makes Taiwan safer or less safe in the long term has a lot to do with how we respond to it from this point on. Now, I actually want to go back to a point I made much earlier in this podcast about how China's drills were so interesting to me. And I don't mean just like, oh, interesting, you know, we're all going to die. What I mean is, if you look (laughs) at the the placement of those uh, six drill areas, it's so obvious that they at least have thought deeply about a blockade scenario. And that has been Mm -hmm. something that's been floated, it's been mooted, but I feel like nobody's truly taken it seriously as an invasion scenario. How are we going to defend against that? Now, very interestingly, because um, we are so dependent on liquefied natural gas here in Taiwan, the Minister of Economic Affairs made a statement saying, don't worry, we have 11 days worth of liquefied natural gas on hand. Now, first of all, really, we shouldn't worry because we have 11 days supplies. To me, that doesn't seem like very much. In a, in a siege scenario, a blockade is basically a siege scenario. Um, secondly, I, I happen to know it's not true um, because I have a lot of industry sources. And because mm-hmm. Taiwan only has two uh, LNG receiving terminal, that becomes a cap on how much we can store on our island. And in the summer, and there's been record usage, so I know it hasn't been lower than usual. In the summer, the supply is about seven days, not 11. So to me, it's, it's deeply, deeply problematic. Um, seven, a seven-day supply of one of your key electricity-generating fuels is not something you want to roll into a blockade with. It's food for thought. <laughs> so if, if, if this scenario somehow um, triggered awareness within the government that this is something we need to defend against, and this is something we need to make ourselves strong against, then maybe it's a good thing. Maybe 
it maybe if this happens, it's a good thing. It, if that happens, it's a bad thing. It's really hard to to say, but I I would say as a principle, I'm not looking forward to a barrage of of future U.S. politicians coming to Taiwan for no clear reason, um, because <laughs> because you know we we came out of this okay for all the storm and drang that the Chinese drummed up, um, they, what they did um, was, you know, pretty, it's not great, but um, it feels more like a release of, of anger um, and um, also to save face, right, because they, they, they stirred up such a domestic furor, you know. Basically, you have netizens in in China thinking it's time to take back Taiwan, so they had to do something. C- can you can you comment on what they did? Say, for instance, you've mentioned these um, these sort of um, like the tanks were turned towards the beach. Um, there are a bunch of sort of military expressions of look how strong we are. Can you just say explicitly what they did to sort of release that anger well, and say? Well, I, I, I think that um, the most serious thing that they did, I, there were like I don't know what exercises there were, in, but the most serious thing they did was eleven missiles, some of which flew right over Taiwan and fell into Japanese waters. Mm. To me, a flyover that is as. That's aggressive as you can get without actually <laughs> yeah. hitting anything. Yeah. Another thing that's yeah. really aggressive about the, those exercises is how uh, the areas, the designated areas, cut into our territorial waters. We're not talking about the air defense identification zone. That's you know that's pointless. It's huge. It's so huge that it part of it actually cuts over a part of China itself. So it's meaningless. Um, but we're mm. talking about within 12 nautical miles of the land. That is actually, you know, that is actually infringing, according to international law, they have infringed upon our sovereignty. They have basic, that, that could be a, an act of war. We decided to interpret it that way. Of course, we're just, we don't want it to interpret it that way. We very wisely am not interpreting it that way, but it's that serious. Um, but meanwhile, you know, their netizens are still, like, disappointed. They're like, that's not much of a show, so. Hmm. All right, well, Angelica, anything that we uh, left out? No, I think that's a, that's about it. Um, it's, it's always a pleasure, and uh, I really hope that the next time we talk, it might be about something else. <laughs> Well, actually, I reckon we should next time do energy, energy Taiwan, energy China, and Southeast Asia energy, um, because that's as we were speaking about off air. You know, geothermal, deep interest of mine. Absolutely, your business is in wind energy. That's right. So, um, I think that would be fascinating. I would love to. There's a lot going on in the offshore wind industry all over Asia. We can talk mm-hmm. about that. We can talk about wind in Taiwan, and we can just talk about energy in general. It's just uh, such a big yeah, present co- sure. topic right now in the world. Well, I look forward to that conversation. Yeah, for example, um, Tim Harcourt, an Australian economist, was on this show, and he was speaking about Western Australian liquid natural gas now sort of being re-diverted to South Korea and Japan yes. because they no longer want to take any of the Russian mm-hmm. stuff. You know, maybe Taiwan could uh, be an energy importer from Australia. I think we already the are. Symbiosis in that relationship. We, we already, 
will we, increase we, it. We take a lot of Australian coal and natural gas. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. maybe our state-owned utility company actually owns a coal mine in Australia. I'm not sure. So it's a very long-term supply situation. But, of course, we also don't want to be mm-hmm. burning Good. fossil fuels forever. No. Well, we'll leave Wonderful. it there. Thank you so much, Angelica. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you again, Angelica. And to you, my dear listener, thank you as well for listening. If this is the first time that you've tuned into this podcast, then I just want to quickly sort of explain what my ambition is for the show. My hope is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country, location, demographic it is that you're tuning in from. So here today, uh, Angelica and I spoke about Taiwan and a contemporary political issue. But broadly, if you zoom out and look at the whole library of the podcast, you'll see that the uh, topics range, they vary, and it just follows whatever my own sort of interests are. So most recently, there was uh, Matthew Dix speaking about the power of storytelling. Uh, Before that, Nicholas Shackson about the cancerous world of offshore finance. Next week is going to be Christopher Turner, who was a 25-year CIA veteran. So the topics vary quite a lot, but what I'm hoping is that we have enough similar interests that every now and again, a podcast will come through this feed that uh, deeply resonates with you. And then hopefully, I and the guest will be able to deliver uh, a piece of audio that also resonates with you. So that's my hope for the podcast, um, corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is you're sending in from. However, huge limitation to making that happen is discoverability. So I would encourage you to please leave five-star reviews, whether that's on Spotify, Apple, whatever other platform you might be listening in on. Leave nice, healthy, fat, juicy reviews. Pump that good juice into the algorithm. And nothing more from me. All the best. Ciao.